Hello and welcome to Core Truth, the podcast show, where we will discover the core truth that controls our experience of life. I'm your host, Mark Follett, and together with my friend, mentor, and author of the book, The Truth of Love and Fear, Rudy Ecker, we will peel back the outer layers of consciousness in order to understand and realize the nature of our perceptions and the beliefs that control the experience of our lives. We will uncover the true nature of consciousness, what drives our personal actions, behavior, and feelings in life, and what really motivates mankind. So we welcome you to join us on a journey of self-discovery, self-realization, and self-awareness to give you a new insight into who you believe you are. This is Core Truth, where we discuss the philosophy of core belief therapy created by Rudy Eckhart. I'm your show host, Mark Follett. Uh, I'm here today with Rudy Eckhart, as always, and today we're going to discuss how to live in a world controlled by fear. Now, this question came from a listener, actually, Rudy, from Dustin, and he he basically has been noticing as a result of listening to our podcast that a lot of people are living in the world in fear and their interactions or the interactions he's seeing in his daily life, he's noticing now that a lot of people are acting out of out of fear uh, and not out of love. So he wanted to kind of know how... How can he live in the world where this is what he's noticing around him? So first of all, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And this is one of those questions which um, are a bit complicated because of the fact that the primary the primary perceiver of everything is always you. So you're the one whose eyes the world are seen through. And so your perception of the world and... Um, the perception of, uh, of the listener that asked the question has, of, of course, a lot to do with what he sees, how he perceives it, and um, why this question came up in for him in the first place. Right? Yeah, he, 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 Dustin did actually um, throw that in. I didn't mention that to you, but he did actually ask me that as well. He said, is it just that I've got issues and I'm seeing the world a particular way because of my own issues? Like, I guess that does complicate it, doesn't it? Of course, it does complicate it. And... And yes, when you have issues, of course, you see the world in a certain way because your belief systems um, will determine your perception. So if you, have, if you operate on belief systems that are unconditional love, acceptance and trust to keep it really fundamental, right, then you will see the world in a greater, uh, how would I say this, do you say you see the world more for what it really is? Um, what it really is then is a world driven by fear, which then is a world that's living in illusion. And this is where it gets complicated mm. because, because my perception, your perception, and Dustin's perception, uh, our perceptions are always tainted by certain fears. Um, I may sound like the fountain of wisdom here but I do have fears to go through myself and just before we started this session um, I did a session on myself uh, with the help of Mark uh, because I also work on myself so I'm not excluded mm. from fear-based issues I also have a history I have a childhood that wasn't perfect uh, so in that sense... Sorry, um, probably the only difference is you, you have an awareness that your fear is not you, and then if it comes up, it's something that you just need to work on and, and move through and uh, and find the unconditional love basis of your life instead of that fear, rather than living in it. Well, I've gone so far as to become 
quite detached from my fears, knowing that my fears do not define me. Mm. It's not just a knowing, but I'm actually, it's an awareness, it's a sense of being that has come over time. I mean, I've done this for 26 years, so, so I've got a bit of an advantage on most listeners who haven't done this for that time and are only just starting out. Um, the, the fact that we do live, and it is a fact, that we do live in a, in a world driven by fears is evidenced. It's all around you. It's in the way that our um, governments work, in the way we um, do business, in the way that we associate with one another, our legal systems, uh, our... Um, Certainly our financial systems. And financial economies. systems, the stock market, mm. everything is based on fear, distrust, manipulation, uh, speculation, all based on the fear of not having, missing out, uh, being disadvantaged, having less than others, uh, which we use in bomb, we, uh, we put one word to that, which is greed. Um, we have people feeling fearful and afraid of living life, being insecure, being defenseless and helpless. So we create armies, we spend our, our, a lot of energy and money creating weapons that are only created to destroy other people or to intimidate other nations. I think there's a lot um, of trust issues too that, you know, a lot of women don't trust men, a lot of men don't trust women, a lot of people don't trust themselves. All of this is playing out. This is, this is all on a more personal level. And, mm. and when you feel powerless because of your sexuality, and it can be anything from being straight to gay uh, for either sex, um, you will then live your life uh, in respect to your, to your opposite sexuality uh, with fear because you're in fear yourself. I guess when we think of the world, like at the moment, of course, we have terrorists and ISIS and um, I don't want to go into politics of it all. It just proves that we thrive on fear. We thrive on fear, and that might sound a bit odd, that we actually, on some level, find fear comforting. Fear becomes a safe place. Fear becomes a safe place. It's <laughs> almost like without fear, where would we be? Mm. Mm. Because, because we, we are so convinced that uh, fear is an acceptable emotion to have in the world in which we live, is that the idea of not having fear can make us feel quite vulnerable and powerless because if we don't have fear, then we won't know what to be fearful of. It is like <laughs> living in a little circle of fear where fear is the inevitable um, outcome of our existence because there's always something to fear. And and we we are not rational about our fears. Our fears do make us irrational and our fears don't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, there's a massive difference, for instance, to standing on the edge of a cliff that is crumbling and you're about to fall in a ravine to uh, having somebody tell you off or being criticized and judged or rejected. Or, or watching something on the news that makes you feel scared, which is obviously really disconnected from you. From, 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 from your, your, personal, from experience, your personal experience, but reflects some of the fears that you must have in order for you to be affected by it. Mm. And so you, 
the the big difference here is is that yes, if you fall off a cliff, it's likely that if it's high enough that you will die when you hit the bottom, right? But if somebody yells at you or criticizes or judges you or you're rejected in a relationship or somebody makes you wrong about something, you're not going to die. No. Nothing is actually going to happen to you. The, the, the fact that you draw out of a fear-based situation so much erroneous information about yourself is it because of the belief systems that you hold about yourself. So in other words, the fears that affect you, the emotional fears, let me correct that, the emotional fears that you have, and we're now distinguishing between emotional fears and physical fears. I think you've spoken before about the difference between physical survival and emotional survival. So you're talking about now the same thing, emotional fear Fe- versus physical and, and physical fear. fear. Physical yeah. fear being a fear that you're not going to physically survive well, you know, it could be as simple as being insignificant, worthless, or believing that you don't matter. Oh, that's the emotional. Of, and yeah. that's the emotional, all yeah. the emotional fears that we have, all right, or that you will be ignored and forgotten, or that you, nobody would ever love you, or and, that and, you don't matter in this world. And you're saying that that's kind of, say, in the cliff analogy, if you're going to, you'd be thinking to yourself, if you're crumbling on the edge of a cliff, if I fall off here, I'm going to die, I'm going to physically not cease to exist, I'm not going to survive this. You're saying that the the fear means that when you're in an emotional space that you feel like you're not going to survive. In the same way. In the same way. Well, while falling off the cliff is definitely a reality, you will die. Yeah. Yeah, it's not likely you will float away in space. I guess I'm just saying in your own mind, it feels the same. It's identical. It's identical. And your body has an identical reaction to it, mm. which, which only goes to prove that <laughs> what you believe... Uh, affects your body. You physically, chemis- the chemistry of your body... Everything is the same. ...reacts the same way. The body cannot tell. The body-mind, or the body-brain, I should say, not the mind, but the brain, cannot tell the difference between what is real and what is not. It just accepts the emotional experience as reality. Mm. So if you're watching something on TV that's actually detached from your real- your direct physical reality, your body... Well, actually, if, if the fears that you get out of watching something on the news are relative to you, then you're going to feel emotionally like your threat, emotional survival is threatened and your body's going to react in a stress response the same as if you were in a physical survival situation. Yeah. That's what you, yeah. Well, even, even like people have, say, fear of heights, the fact is that if they were standing on the edge of a cliff, they wouldn't fall. Do you understand? Standing on the edge of a, of a great height doesn't make you fall. So it is then our fantasy and imagination of what it would be like to fall, Mm. of what could happen that we then project into the immediate future uh, that makes us terrified of standing on the edge of a cliff. We we fear the thought of falling rather than the height itself. Yeah, Mm. it's a concept of falling and dying that we're then afraid of, which is really a, a, a product of our fantasy and imagination. And probably reflects a whole number of things about other fears that we have about death, dying, pain and suffering, uh, who knows what. So it draws it back into the emotional survival anyway. Yeah, <laughs> and, it, it, and it is likely, like I, I used an example in my, one of my early books which didn't reappear in, this, in, other, in, in the second version of it which is currently available, is that say a mother, right, is, um, is holding her baby, right, And a storm comes up and there's heavy lightning and lightning strikes and thunder, right? And 
she panics and gets fearful while she's holding the child while all this is going on. It is quite likely that the child will develop her fear of lightning and thunder later in life, or if not early in life, and instinctively feels there must be something to fear, mm. right? And of course, while you should be cautious uh, when there's lightning and not find yourself in the, the highest point uh, <laughs> in a flat space, right? Because then you stand out physically and you could be hit by lightning. And I've heard stories from people that where this has happened. Um, there's generally nothing to fear. Just because there's lightning and there's heavy rain and there's a storm, it's just a storm. It's normal. It's part of life. It's part of this world. It's part of the weather. You know, millions of people don't die because of a lightning strike. I actually think generally that's, speaking. that's an important point. And something that I've noticed is that fear almost, um, it, it fear distorts your perception of the risk. Because, for instance, um, if, if you're going surfing, you're going, you fear that you're going to get taken by a shark, but the risk is actually really, really low of getting taken by a shark in the same way that being in a storm and getting hit by, by lightning is really, really small. But, but the fear makes you sort of focus on, on heightening that level of risk. You feel that the level of risk is far higher. The probability of that event is far higher than, than the reality of the situation. That's, that's right. Yeah. So standing up in an open and flat space during a lightning storm is the same as putting blood and bone in the water when you're surfing, because you will be attracting sharks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right? I mean, you wouldn't do it. Yeah. And you wouldn't stand up. But it is essentially not dangerous. Uh, in principle, uh, you're more likely to have a car accident than you are to be t attacked by a shark or hit by lightning. Mm. And yet we have... Most people drive, and they're not terrified mm. enough to not drive, mm. while the likelihood of them having an accident is much, much greater they're being taken by a shark or being hit by lightning. It, it's just the nature of our fears, right? It's the, it's the um, how can I put it? When we already have a fear and we then, like let, let's take that child, that baby that I'm talking about who now grows up, right? Um, instinctively, because the fear exists, instinctively it will look for evidence to justify that particular fear. So if somebody in Botswana or Lower Mongolia or um, in the you know in the Sahara Desert was hit by lightning, it will constitute proof for them that being fearful of lightning is totally justified. So we do that a lot. We do that more so than what we think. And what you say is absolutely right. Because it is an actual distortion of the risk. Fear doesn't allow us to see the reality of what is part of this world, of what this world is all about. I mean, the fact that we can be so terrified of, of failure, of, of being a disappointment, of being let down, of being criticized and judged, or not being good enough, while none of these things constitute any life-threatening experiences, right? Uh, should be proved to anyone how strong the force of fear is in our lives. And, I, and you mentioned earlier on, and I'm, I want to go on a bit here, um, you mentioned earlier on physical, survi physical survival versus emotional survival, and it was also 
a question within the question, right? The since since our beingness from in from my perspective and in my opinion is a product of our consciousness, which is a non-physical state, which is an energetic construct, then emotional survival was always the primary. Never the secondary. Yeah, you're talking in, ev in evolutionary terms. In the evolutionary yeah. terms, our consciousness and the survival it's of its being, which is uh, being naturally, your being or existing, right, of our consciousness, is always been the primary mm. and always will be the primary and that will never change. Whether we are physical or not, that existence is, um, how can I say it, um, is continuous, cannot be, in, in, in as far as we know and, and can understand this, cannot be changed. Once you exist, you exist. <laughs> it, it is like not possible not to exist once you exist. Mm. No more than it is possible to exist if you don't. So you're saying in your opinion, if you, um, whether you're physical or not, you have a consciousness and that the emotional survival of that consciousness exists whether you're physical or not. So then the, the physical survival is a secondary thing. It's always the secondary thing. Mm. It, and and it, it provides some explanation for behavior of people and animals where they are prepared to sacrifice their life for another party, right? Where they're supposed to, because ultimately giving up their physical life is the first thing they can do. Mm. Uh, because they, they, there's a deeper awareness that on a, on the survival level of their consciousness, it will always survive, no matter what they do with their body, and no matter whether their body survives or not. Um, it is, um, I'm trying to think of the word, and I'm, I'm just missing it for the moment. Um, but this sacrifice of life, um, which um, or sacrifice of needs or sacrifice of expectations that people do for others uh, is not a sacrifice of the primary, so to speak. Of the emotional survival. No, of the primary, yeah. Or it, it, it is not, uh, uh, we don't give up existence by doing that. There's no threat to existence. No. Because we're indestructible. Well, we are because we are, and and it's it's our beingness, which is part of the greater beingness, uh, which is indestructible unless all beingness ceases to exist, mm. and that is impossible for us to contemplate <laughs> because we don't even know, on a more profound level, what we are a part of as a consciousness. Mm. We we don't uh, we try to connect with things like. A God or something like that, but I think even our concept of God as it is displayed in religions is a very limited perception of what that actually represents. Probably it's a very, the Buddhists it's a very and the Hindus have a better, a better understanding of this than many Christian religions do. Mm. It tends uh, to be a very human-based version of, you know, it's sort of a there's a masculine figure, it's, it's a human form, you know, it's a, it's a very human-based thing. I guess the, the the start of the discussion, and I guess what you were referring to there is Dustin did have another question, which kind of plays into this as well, which is about um, how did how did our society become to live in fear? But we haven't really gone back to that original question: is 
that some, you know, we're all walking around, we have our own issues and problems, and we're interacting with other people that have issues and problems in the world. How can we understand when we interact with someone as a negative experience? Is that something that we need to be working on? Are we looking outwardly at the world and seeing people play out their fears? It just seems to be so invasive, this, this fear-based society that we live in, that it's hard well, to recognize when something's not fear-based. Almost. Well, it's, and I have to go back to the very, one of the first things I said, it was that your perception is always limited by your own issues. Mm. And you can only see yourself and the world as clearly as you are aware of who you are in the true sense of the word, not what you would like to be or what you think you should be for others. These are all different versions of yourself. You may parade out to yourself and the world but they don't truly represent who you are. To understand who you truly are, you need to include in that all of your fears and insecurities, not just what you like to be or what your talents and abilities are or the level of your intelligence or your capacity to learn academically. None of those things truly represent the nature of your being. They just represent what you're capable of and what you can um, achieve in certain parts of life. Um, so if you want to be clear about what you see in the world and therefore in other people, you need to be clear, first of all, about yourself. So knowing yourself, understanding yourself and having a deep awareness of the own nature of your being will allow you to understand your own perception and then what you perceive. So the perceiver needs to understand himself in order to um, have clarity of what he's perceiving. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty profound statement. There. I think we need to explore that. Yeah, yeah. there's really no other way around that. Mm. There's no knowing or seeing that you can do without taking perception into account. Um, and since our perception is laden with intent, right? Because our belief systems, positive or negative, have intent. If 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 you unconditionally love yourself, then the intent within that notion, right, is that you are unconditionally lovable. And with that comes the expectation and the thought and awareness that you must then believe that other people will see you as being unconditionally lovable and acceptable. And that's how they will interact with you on, and, on that footing. And, and on that that's basis. how you will be in the world. Mm. Then your interaction with them will be reflected by that. And if they then act in ways that correspond with that, then they will accept and love you yeah, uh, in response to your mm -hmm. self-expression uh, of your belief systems and the intent it, it has and creates. But if you then come across somebody who feels affronted by that because they have a deep belief that they're unacceptable and unlovable, right, you may get a negative reaction, but you will be aware that that person doesn't love themselves. You will know and see because you know what it is like to love yourself unconditionally. Mm. It's like the cloud's so, been lifted from your perception there. I mean, yeah, but it's more than that. You you know the nature of what unconditional love is 
by the fact that you unconditionally love yourself. Mm. And therefore, you can see when unconditional love is not present because you recognize its absence mm. and you will recognize the fear that could make you act and behave differently towards that person because you know that their potential anger or self-deprecation or a reaction to you that is maybe of a negative kind is driven by their fears and insecurities and has nothing to do with you. So it makes you act and feel very differently, very differently because you will not take it on as being your problem. And so you will not judge yourself or feel offended or upset because there's nothing to be upset and offended by because mm. this person just has an issue and it's got nothing to do with you. It doesn't hold any charge for you. you no, just, but turn you're just aware, it, I just create an awareness. Exactly, but, but turn that around and say, um, I've got a belief that I'm worthless and insignificant. So I judge myself to be worthless and insignificant and I expect others to judge me as worthless and insignificant. And so, and, and the intent of that is the intent of that then to find evidence of, of instances and, and occurrences where of that's course. the case. Yeah. But, but you turn it into evidence. Mm -hmm. It's not that like this, it is finding evidence, but you turn it into evidence. Say, for instance, you believe you don't matter. You have a tendency, perhaps, to exclude yourself out of situations because people don't need to reject you. You kind of reject yourself because you expect to be rejected. There's like there's a whole number of things like being unacceptable. Um, you expect others not to accept you. So when there are when there is a situation where um, somebody makes a comment which is just intended uh, to show you perhaps where you've done the wrong thing, you will make it into a criticism and proof that they don't accept you you will turn it into something because your perception is tainted by your fears. And therefore, you will continually find evidence to prove that your fears are real and true. Not only that, and this is where it all goes deeper and further, you are likely to attract people who correspond with your fears and insecurities and provide you with proof that what you believe about yourself or through yourself in relation in relation to yourself about the world and others, that those things are true. Mm. So, for instance, you know, the classic one, and I've mentioned this before, is about the aggressor and the victim. It is classic proof that a victim will always attract a person who will become the aggressor because of how the victim is. And the victim needs that, in a sense, and I'll put it in inverted commas, because they are, through their fears and insecurities, always in the process of proving that they are the victim that they believe themselves to be. So they obviously need to be victimized. Mm. Because without being victimized, how can I be the victim? <laughs> right? They don't think that way, but that's how it comes out. Mm. That they, they choose situations um, and they will tell you endless stories. There will be endless stories that will come from someone and saying, uh, he did this to me or that happened to me or the boss did that to me and work did that to me and and they're always the victim of every situation and they'll have endless stories to prove to you that they're nothing but the poor victim <laughs> right uh, which is that which is that 
um, looking for proof, looking for evidence of what the of what the insecurity yeah. is in the first place. And and an aggressor will justify his aggression in the same way, like he had no choice. Mm. What could he do? Yeah, what could you do with someone like yeah, that? Yeah, what could you do with someone like that? You know, to drive you bloody crazy. I, I must think about. I like to think about things in musical terms because I think uh, I think that way, and I, I love playing the guitar. So um, it's almost like. You've got everyone's walking around with their own energy, which is at a certain vibration in the same way that you might be walking around playing a musical instrument in a certain key, right? And it, say if, if your fear is causing you to have your instrument out of tune and the, the sound waves and the energy you're putting out from that is at a certain frequency, you're actually then attracting other people whose instruments are out of tune in the same and way. Match your, and match your yeah. out of tune. And then when you play together, it's a, it's a, it sounds like a nice sound. Yeah. Um, but if you were you if you were playing in that um, let's say in imperfect pitch concert pitch or something like that that would be the unconditional love version of it uh, and you'd resonate with people that were at that at that frequency and if you were then come in contact with people who didn't resonate with that frequency they would you would then feel that there was a difference between where you were and, and where, they, where are. they are yeah yeah which which is like um, what was I going to say. The whole idea, right? The whole idea of unconditional love, acceptance, and trust is an important concept because it is intrinsic in our consciousness. And that is something that, that needs to be remembered. Fear is not an intrinsic part of our consciousness. Fear is a product, in actual fact, of unconditional love, acceptance, and trust. When, it, when, it's, when it's absent. When it's taken away, when when we can no longer longer accept, trust, and believe that we're unconditionally lovable, unconditionally acceptable, unconditionally wanted, unconditionally believed, if you like, uh, and there's a whole number of other words I could use that are positive. If we no longer believe that, then we have to meet requirements or conditions in order to get love but it's no longer unconditional. So in other words, if, um, if you're only acceptable, if you behave, act in a certain way, right, then to be accepted, then you need to act and behave in that specific way. So there's a condition on your behavior when you're in relationship with somebody. So you would have learned that in childhood. And it could be small things, um, it could be small things collect, uh, repeated constantly and becoming a quite a humongous thing in your life. Uh, this could be like a constant pressure on you to be disempowered. In other words, not to be strong in your opinions, your ideas, your beliefs, not express yourself in any affirmative, assertive way, uh, not to be more successful, more capable, more competent, more intelligent, than anyone else, particularly your parents. And in that way, dumbing yourself down on all these different levels, intellectually, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically, uh, in life. And then wondering, how come I can't be successful? How come I can't do this? How come I get stressed and um, anxious and fearful and afraid whenever I have to meet expectations, whenever people make demands on me, whenever there's a job for me to do, whenever I... Uh, I mean, put in a position where there's a lot of responsibility, right? And that is because you have then all these fears 
because there are conditions for you to be met that you fear that you cannot meet. That is fear. Fear is a word, right? Fear is a word to describe an emotion. Fear is not a thing. Fear is not physical. Fear is just a state, a state of mind, a state of mind that is brought about by, as you said, the absence of unconditional love, unconditional trust, unconditional acceptance, and not being wanted, right? Those things disappear when parents put conditions in place in their relationship with you because of the fears and insecurities that they have. Mm. They do this unconsciously or subconsciously. They're not often, most of the time, not even aware they're doing it because they feel that they're being normal. Their idea of being normal is a reflection of the way they were raised and they have accepted as normal because of the way their parents acted and behaved towards them. Most of the time, parents are not aware of this and act and behave that way. Now, of course, there will be some people who have been abused and then are aware of that they're being abused and then try very hard not to be the parents their parents were, but don't, do not realize that being opposite to their parents creates just as much harm as being like their parents, just harm in a different way. Mm. Like a parent who was raised uh, in a very restricted and disciplinary and aggressively controlling environment where they were never allowed to do, be, think, express themselves uh, as they were truly meant to, as they were born to be the people that they were, uh, or born to be to, 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 uh, to fulfill their potential. Um, when they have their children, they're going to say, I'm not going to do that to my kids. I'm not going to discipline them. I'm not going to control them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell them what to do. I'm not going to be on their case all the time. I'm not going to criticize and judge them. I'm not going to do any of that. And so they raise children who have no sense of self-responsibility, are not self-disciplined, um, are impulsive, uh, have no sense of self-control, and then wonder what they've done wrong as parents because didn't they do all the right things? Didn't they save them from the very things that they were subjected to? Right? So it's not as simple as that, mm. right? Because the essence of it is those parents never dealt with the fears and insecurities that they came away with from their childhood. And so and so they never because they never dealt with it, there's no balance in the way that they are parents with their children. Mm. Right? So so we got this two things that I've at least mentioned where where parents are either acting and behaving just like their parents or they're trying to act and behave opposite to their parents. And in either situation, not knowing who you are, not dealing with your fears and insecurities, not being truly conscious and present with the true nature of who you truly are, the nature of your being, stops you from being what you're meant to be as a parent. And then instilling the same problems or problems of an opposite kind into your children. Mm. Yeah. And so um, the question comes how do I live in a world um, that is full of fear? Right. And really, the only way to live in a world with fear is to be the one person without it. And the only way you're going to be without fear is by dealing with your fears and insecurities. Mm and looking at how you hold them, how they are a part of you, what your belief system is all about, 
and making an effort to let that go because your fears, no matter how real they feel, and they give you real feelings. So I'm not denying that fear is a feeling you can have or a feeling that is real. I'm not denying that anxiety, stress, and panic are not real feelings. Mm. But what I will tell you, that all those feelings are based on illusion. That you've accepted an illusion as being a truth, which then creates feelings in you, which, which have we don't stand up to examination because they're not real. It is not realistic to panic because you have to ask your boss for a raise. Mm. It's just not realistic. You can make it a reality, but it's not. Mm. You know, your life is not in danger. You're not going to die. And if he's offended, it's not your responsibility. If he's got an issue with that, it's not yours. But if you make it yours, if you make all this your responsibility because of the fear that you carry, yes, of course you will be fearful and afraid and panicked and worried and concerned. And so the stress you feel then is a product of what you create from within yourself. That will distort your perception. It will distort your behavior. It will bring up feelings that aren't real. And you will, you will interact and act according to that paradigm that you hold on to. That will be your life experience. That will be your life. Mm. If you want to change all of that, you always have to go back within. There's no other way of coming to it, and there's no other way to see what is real in the world and what is not. Mm. One thing that's a really interesting point there that kind of underlies everything you're saying there, and I'd like your comment on this, is... A lot of the world is based on the science. A lot of the, what we're taught is based on the scientific method, where you have to be, you have to be objective. You have to look at something outside of it, and in an interaction between two people, for instance, people are looking for what is the absolute truth of that situation. Like there's a there's an objective thing where you can sit outside of that as an observer, look at it, and say the real situation is is this. People are looking for that absolute value in things when the reality is, as you've said in this, what we've been talking about, what is really important is the subjective experience of the two people involved because there'll be, there'll be two truths, two, two experiences that might both be not true. And so what I'm guessing getting at, I suppose, is that there's a focus in society on absolute truths, like something is either true or it's not. Whereas what we're talking about is that each perceiver perceives their own truth subjectively. Yeah. And that's what's really important, to look at the, each individual perceiver and their subjective experience, their experience of their life. That's what's really important, not to look at somehow look at it externally and clinically and say, you're right, you're wrong, you, you know, try and pick things apart. It's, it's not about finding an absolute truth. It's about finding... Yeah, but you know, the absolute the absolute truth is that consciousness is the nature of our consciousness in this world is based on the expectation that we live, exist and breathe, if you like, uh in a state of unconditional love, acceptance and trust. Whenever we move away from that, we go into fear. So if you want to talk about absolutes, that is the one absolute that I can believe in. Mm. Right, uh, everything else is not an absolute. What people accept as an absolute is another story, but that's because they don't examine 
the so-called absolute for what it is. I mean, I mean, some some listeners will be aware of this, Mike. In quantum physics, they've come to the conclusion that there is such a thing as the observer effect, yeah. where the observer, the intent of the observer, can make something happening that is observable, right? Or, or the now, outcome of the experiment is directly related to the instruments by which it is uh, conducted. Because there is an in, because an instrument, when it's created, it's created to perform in a certain way, which is intent. Hmm. So when, when an instrument has an intent, it will only find what it is intended for <laughs> and look not beyond its intention, right? The human intent is no different, of course. Uh, no one on this planet can say that they live life without intent. And everyone on this planet, and there will be the rare individual that is not in this state, and which in, you know, that, that includes me, is that we all have fears, so we all have, if we have fears, then we walk with distortion. So we need reference points. We need a reference point that is absolute, to use your word, right? And the only reference point that I can think of on an emotional level is unconditional love, acceptance, and trust. So when something is not of unconditional love, acceptance, and trust, when people put conditions on things, when they want specific outcomes because it serves a purpose, Right, that has to do with fear, uh, the fear of being wrong, the fear of, of not succeeding, the fear of um, not being significant and special. Don't forget, scientists are human beings. They are not machines, <laughs> you know, and even machines have intent, as we just said earlier. But <laughs> scientists are human beings that have needs, expectations, fears, insecurities, who try to convince us is that they can be totally objective when they do their experiments. And there are so many different possibilities and opportunities in which they will not be objective and cannot even be objective because of their humanity, is that it makes outcomes always questionable, no matter which way you look at it. If you, if There's, there's so many things that... that to me are obvious and may not be obvious to people, but by excluding certain potentials of consciousness and reality out of the picture of life, right, you can then come up with a whole bunch of conclusions which turn out to be wrong. It's one of the reasons why quantum physics and Newtonian physics don't agree. Is <laughs> because in Newtonian physics we included, excluded a whole number of potentials because we didn't understand the nature of the tiniest things that make up the molecules and the physical reality in which we live. And so by excluding the knowledge of that, we assumed there were certain laws and certain realities about these laws which were impossible to challenge and were absolute truths. Then we looked at the world from a quantum physics perspective and we come up with a whole new set of rules. And now we've got everything living side by side because somehow they're not agreeable with each other. So we then make up another rule, which then says Newtonian physics, we can apply in this physical world because it's easy 
And we can understand that because we've lived with it for so long mm. and we've convinced ourselves that it's to be true. It's easy to teach in primary school. And then we go into real science <laughs> like quantum physics, we can we can now operate on a whole new set of rules. <laughs> and so and so we can bend reality whichever way we like, even from a scientific perspective. So it's it's what is real always has to come from you. That's the real point of what I'm saying. Mm. It has to come from you. It has to come from within your mind and from within your consciousness and your perception. And the only way you can create that absolute reality for yourself is by getting rid of your fears. Because when you do, you will be amazed. Because a lot of things that you believe to be true and real in this world are not. You can take it from me that that to be true and that you will only know by getting rid of your fears. There are things that don't seem to be directly related to your fears, which are not true in this world, which you are presented with as truths and realities, and which which you will examine without your fears and realize that you're being hoodwinked, that you're being lied to, that you're being deceived. And that will only happen once you drop the blinkers from your own eyes. Mm. So that that's really the answer to, to Dustin's question is... Um, the, the world is in the eyes of the of the perceiver of the beholder, you know. In in, in this way, what was a clever person that said that? I don't know. It's a Metallica <laughs> song, "Eye of the Beholder." Uh, <laughs> but um, but that that's in your book too, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I'm gonna. Um, there will be a book called um, um, "The Truth of Being Human." Mm, that would right? be interesting. And um, we're getting into some pretty deep concepts, I think, today. So I think that's that's good. Um, now we've got a few minutes left. Um, Dustin did have a second question. If if maybe maybe a, a, this will be probably hopefully a little bit easier to answer because I think this is something you have an opinion of rather than something that's obviously something you've got a direct experience of. But um, his question was: If the world is in fear now, and, and it, based on this emotional survival, at what point in our human history, if we look back over our cultural history, did fear become the norm? Did fear become the way we live our lives? Is that something that you, you believe, in your opinion, has always been present in all societies and cultures, or is it something that has evolved and got, I guess, more pervasive in our societies as we've as we've moved further away from unconditional yeah. love, acceptance and trust? I'm just interested in an opinion from you. I guess obviously yeah. no one was there at the start of everything to know but no even even our perception of evolution and all that is still not watertight and is still questionable no matter how we try to fit the pieces together mm. because um we've seen now the 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 um the understanding that science gave us about how human beings evolved all of a sudden exploded into something entirely different as soon as dna testing became available right and we we realized that there must have been branches of uh, human-like creatures uh, that existed and that but we're still making this assumption that we came from the apes we came down from the trees and it's questionable because we still have apes in trees and <laughs> they haven't come down from the trees and become human so we've now turned it into branches of evolution to 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 prove that humans still come from you know from fish and um and and so forth right without without going into the whole detail of it so i don't want to go into that because 
if we do that, then it becomes a whole different discussion. I just want to talk about human consciousness in um, and using quite a broad brush here. But I think what what must have happened over time is the the lack of understanding or the lack of realization is probably a better word of the fact that we are the creators of our own reality. I think the moment that we saw ourselves being subject to reality and came to believe that we were, if you like, victims of the reality that we live in without realizing that we were the creators of it, um, without realizing, but created distance in that realization, mm. that we became more and more convinced that it was being done to us rather than when we were the creators of it. And there may have been valid reasons for that uh, from a natural perspective for that to happen. I don't know that. Maybe, maybe there have been disasters and which had consequences in early Earth history that have caused humanity to make that a perception because a natural disaster may give the impression or um, uh, create the belief that people have no control over their lives because the loop of creativity, and this is a whole other discussion which I don't <laughs> want to go into, the loop of creativity can be extremely long. Mm. In other words, um, what we do as individuals is more easily visible and talked about and, and analyzed than what we do as a collective. Mm. Um, and as a collective, you can look at individual collectives again, like collectives of people who believe and share the same belief systems. But then you look at the collective of the human beings of all on the planet. How would they affect Earth, our solar system, and the, the, the universe as it is? Since all things are interconnected and interactive energetically, um, the intent, the combined intent, the universal intent of everyone on Earth, right, has an effect mm. on how everything is. And that includes the weather. And that includes the way the earth is and the sun and the universe around us. And we do not see this because we are, those are cycles which are many times the cycles of our life. And so we don't see it in one human experience. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the history, uh, the evolution of, of, like of, of consciousness, uh, say that we see in the things we can discover, like... For instance, um, I'm trying to think of the Aztecs, I'm thinking of the Egyptians, I'm thinking of the Druids, I'm thinking of near historical uh, populations of which we know not as much as we should. Mm. They had a greater awareness of these enormous cycles. Uh, mm. In in, um, in Sanskrit, what's it called? Um, Ayurvedic, um, mm. Indian history, right? Um, where there are enormous cycles which go for many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. There are cycles that they understand and that they've determined which, which affect humanity and its growth and its evolution. Uh, they, they are aware of this. Now, that we don't even have that really that... We know what they're aware of, but we don't have that awareness in our culture. 
we, with all our science, don't have the capacity to even see or recognize that. Mm. We don't have the recognition of these evolutionary energetic cycles of influence of consciousness um, which happen in the universe around us and in our solar system uh, because our solar system doesn't sit still in space. It moves around in space. So its relationship with everything but other solar systems uh, and <clears throat> other universe, no, what would you call that? Um, galaxies. Other galaxies mm. is constantly changing, <clears throat> right? So we are constantly moving in a different part of space with different energetic fields. <clears throat> and because of that, it is seen by these ancient sciences that humanity is going through cycles of change. We are all a part of this. Mm. We are interactive part of this. We're not an isolated part of this, nor are we victims of it. We're active we are, participants. We are right? active participants in this process mm. as a universal collective consciousness. Do we see this? No. Are we aware of this? No. Do we in our day-to-day -day life uh, have a sensitivity to that? No. Do we know what we contrib contribute? Probably not. Mm. Not on a conscious level. Because if we don't know our own fears and insecurities, how do we know what we contribute or not? Mm. You know, having conscious positive intentions over something that you have fears about will be overridden by your fears. Mm. Your conscious intention will not be good enough. It's exhausting as well. Well, if you fear failure, you want to be successful. You fear failure will sabotage your success. Mm. So conscious intent only carries you so far, but it will never carry you far enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good answer to the to the question. It's a very difficult one to answer. I realise because you know it's it's a, I guess it's a theory on it, but. Um, but there is, but it's a theory. But there is evidence in the things I just mentioned. Of course, it is not just that the 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 ancient Indians or the ancient Aztecs or the ancient Druids or the ancient Hopi Indians and and other civilizations are are all wrong. They all have, in their own separate ways and in dissimilar times have come to the same conclusions. Mm. So just because we think it's older, we probably want to dismiss it. It is not dismissible in the real sense because how can we accept that discrete populations come to the same conclusions and then reject it as evidence? It's just not, wouldn't even be scientific if you really think about it, no. you know? No, I mean, there's, there's certainly evidence, you can certainly look back in our history books and see evidence of fear in, say, um, the ancient Egyptian civilizations, the Roman civilizations more recently. Um, so you can definitely see that fear is there. And it, it's an interesting point that you picked up there that you, you felt that the point at which fear sort of took over people's lives is when they started to look outward at the world and outward at other people and other forces and, re and and believe that they were the victims or that things that happened to them were not of their control. That seems to be the point. And whether we can pinpoint when that was is probably not important is to understand that that's really the changeover point. Because if you think of a, a civilization where they believe their God created their weather and their God, you know, created the bad crop seasons for them or whatever, then they're, they're thinking there's an outside force that's putting this kind of thumbprint and in control yeah. over their lives and they yeah. live in fear of that, of that, uh, uncon of that it's sort of conditional love from a god yeah. going on there. So it's probably dependent on the civilization as to when the, the changeover has happened. 
Yeah. Look, there could be other influences I'm not aware of. Uh, there could be other influences that probably we shouldn't be talking about here in this, this session. But um, the, the, the truth of it is that humanity then um, went, and, and, and I'm, I, I'm assuming that it's beyond 4,500, 5,000 years, right? That this, this really became entrenched about then. Right, and it it's only got worse and worse and worse. We're probably living at this very time, in the very peak of this, or it's going to its peaking. Mm -hmm. um, still on the way up. It's still. I think it's still on the way up. Personally, mm -hmm. um, living in a world that is based on fear, controlled by fear, and driven by fear, and manipulated, if you like, through fear, um, because we're also sensitive and vulnerable because of our own fears. It is, you know, it's really pushing the world as it is right now to a crisis point. And whilst you may not think you have any control, it is actually your individual fears, which are part of the collective, which are part of the result that we're seeing of how the world is right now. So really, if you want to change the world, start with you. Start with your own fears and insecurities. Start with looking at yourself. Start with being real and honest and sincere with yourself. And do this without judgment. Do this without self-criticism. Because there is no place for this if you want to change. There just there is no place for that. Mm. It serves no purpose. And it doesn't help you. All right. Well, I think that is a fantastic way you've just managed to somehow draw those two very different questions into one into one answer, which is it's all about the individual involved um, in terms of um, both the world consciousness and the impact that we have on the world and the, the fact that the whole world lives in fear, plus the way that each individual interacts with the world. It's all about the individual involved, and that's the most that's the point of power that we have. The time is here and now. And, and the person who has the power is, is you. Um, I just wanted to, I guess, encourage our listeners to send us their questions because I think it's a fascinating uh, exercise to actually hear some feedback on the show to understand what sort of questions um, our discussions and Rudy's wisdom mm -hmm. um, are bringing out in people. And so I'd encourage you to, to email us. Uh, my email is uh, mark. Shane Follett, F-O-L-L-E-T-T, at gmail.com. Rudy is uh, Rudy Eckhart. No, do you know this? Reckhart, R-E-C-K. Right. H-A-R-D-T. Yep. At optusnet.com.au. Yeah, so so email either one of us with your questions and then we'll uh, we'll have a discussion about them on the show So because we, we really appreciate that sort of feedback mm -hmm. and, uh, and questions. So. Uh, anything else you want to say to wrap up, Rudy? I just want to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you soon again. Right. Thank you again for your time, Rudy. You're very welcome. Okay. Bye, everybody.